We love remembering life's journeys, don't we? Whether it's a family vacation, a road trip, taking your oldest to college for the first time. Maybe it's remembering a journey to a family funeral or a family wedding. We love to capture those memories and and typically pictures and videos. And then we love to update our our social media statuses so that our friends and family can kind of uh, vicariously go on our journeys with us. After that, we love to tell stories about those journeys. I don't know about you, but I love journey stories. You know, there isn't a bad conversation ever when four magical words are the lead words to a story. You know what those magical words are? Do you remember when? Think about it. You ever been in a bad conversation that began with those four words? Do you remember when? My family, we're sitting around the dinner table this week, and it's spring break here in uh, St. Charles. And uh, we used to go places on spring break every once in a while until high school sports hit, and they don't let you go anywhere. So this time we were just uh, reminiscing back to yesteryear. And my kids said to me, hey, Dad, do you remember when you played that April Fool's joke on us one year? Well, truth be known, I played several April Fool's jokes on my kids through the years. But the one they were talking about uh, had to do with uh, a morning when we were in uh, Florida. And it was obviously uh, April 1st. And uh, there was a a pond outside of our window. We were at a condominium complex with several buildings. And just a, a small pond was there with a fountain, a little fountain. You know the kind. And so on that morning, I got up early. And I opened up the drapes, the blinds, and I said, hey, kids, come in here quick. I see a bunch of dolphins in our pond. So the kids run in. They're looking for dolphins in our little condominium pond. Then my wife comes, and she says, where are the dolphins? (laughs) Remember, I woke her up, so cut her a little slack, okay? And then I said, April Fools. Aw, Dad. Well, this week they said, aw, Dad, do you remember when? Stories are great. Well, throughout Scripture, we see journey after journey that is recorded in Scripture for us to remember, for us to remember God's goodness. A smile comes on our face when we read journey after journey and we see God's faithfulness. We also look at these journeys in Scripture not only to remember but to apply to our own lives. These stories impact, these journeys impact who we will become. So tonight, we're going on a journey together. Are you guys up for a journey tonight together on Good Friday? Yeah, good. You know, probably like you, I've got friends in Florida and Arizona and the Caribbean. Let them have those spring break journeys. We've got our own journey tonight. Our journey is one of remembrance. Our journey is one of worship. Our journey is one from the past to your future. On this Good Friday, we're taking a journey with Jesus to the cross. Now, as we go on this journey today, we're going to have some guides. I'm going to help guide you. A couple of our pastors from other campuses will as well. We're going to have times of corporate worship, looking at God's word. We're going to have some private prayer. But as we do it, you may recognize this journey, and you may think of it in the terms of the stations of the cross. 
Well, here's the deal. Historically, many have rejected the practices associated with the Stations of the Cross, largely because they were associated typically with indulgences, a perceived spiritual merit, if you will, kind of a get-out-of-sin-free card. However, as those traditions have changed in some of those traditional settings, more and more Christ followers want the experience, the inspiration of a journey to the cross with Jesus. So tonight, that's what we're doing. We're not doing the stations of the cross. We're looking at the destinations of Jesus' journey and what Jesus was feeling in that moment and what we can apply to our lives from each destination. And I've got to warn you, this journey is, is not an easy one. There's a lot of suffering and there's actual death. But you see, God through it all will and does remain faithful. And he asks us to be faithful as well. It's Good Friday. We'll hear about his faithfulness because of Sunday. Sunday is coming. It's right around the corner. Just not yet. You see, without Good Friday, there is no real meaning to Resurrection Sunday. So let's begin this journey together. The first destination on this journey is Pilate condemns Jesus to die. We find this in Matthew 27, verses 11 to 14, and then 26. Let me read that. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a, to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. And Pilate then handed him over to be crucified. As I read this at first blush, I just want to cry out, Jesus, why did you not speak up? Why did you not proclaim who you were? Proclaim your innocence. But then you remember, yeah, Jesus knew what was going on. He knew what was at the end of the journey. And he knew the beginning was being condemned to die. So then my focus shifts from frustration with Jesus in that moment to all of the people that he helped along the way. Where were they out, are in this moment? Why was Jesus having to stand alone in front of Pilate? Where were the lepers that were healed? The blind who could now see, the deaf who could now hear. Where were all of those that ate the loaves and the fishes on the hillside? Just five days earlier, there were people everywhere waving palm branches and cloaks and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the king of the Jews. Where were they now? Yet no one spoke. No one stood up. Jesus stood alone. Well, again, as I try to wrangle in my angst and my frustration with why he had to stand alone, I, I look at my own life at this destination. I go, wow. You know, truth be known, when I look at some of these frustrations I have, I have to look in a mirror because I'm not innocent. Along the way, I've left others alone in their faith. I've not treated others fairly. I have not spoken up for others when they needed a voice. 
There are times that I've not had the courage to come to their defense. So tonight I learn from Jesus' journey. My guess is that you learn from Jesus' journey along with me as well. Tonight we feel Jesus' pain and we realize that it's because of our sinfulness that he went through the pain that he did. So what do we do? What's our response as we begin this journey together tonight? Well, I think the best way to respond is just to confess, to confess, to say what Jesus already knows, but to just spend a few moments alone just between you and him. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If your knees still work, would you just go ahead and get down right in front of you, right in front of the seat where you are? If your knees don't work, stay in the seat where you are. Go ahead across the auditorium. And just for about 30 seconds or so, I'm going to ask you just to confess to the Lord whatever it is that's in your mind right now. It may be confession of cowardice or judgment of others, misuse of power, shame in your workplace or school or soccer sidelines at your relationship with Christ. Let's start this journey on our knees in confession just between you and the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing our hearts, for forgiving us of our sins, for dying on the cross, for all the things that we just confessed to you. Help us tonight to have eyes to see what it is you want to speak to us about. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated again. Tonight, as we take this journey, we're going to snuff out candles along the way to, mark, to be markers on our journey as the night gets darker and darker. And now we move to destination number two. Jesus accepts the cross. This also comes from Matthew 27. And what occurred here is just horrendous to think about. The soldiers gathered around Jesus. They, they've, in a form of mocking, put this robe on him, gave him a staff. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head. If you ever pricked your finger on a rose bush trimming it, you know the, the pain and the frustration of that. Well, imagine that just a hundred score bearing down on your head and having blood flow around your face and into your eyes. And here they are, and then they get down on their knees and mockingly say, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Then they take the very rod that they, have get, that they had given them, and they start beating them on the head with it. This is found in Matthew 27. And when they were done, they took his robe and they sent him off to be crucified. You know, I, I listened to that and I just cringe at the pain of the thorns. How could they do this to the one that they were declaring to be the king of the Jews just a few days earlier? We see this crowd, these soldiers, they, they thought of a king in terms of earthly power. 
But this king, he came to be the kind of king that's represented in Isaiah 11, who shepherds his people, whose principles are faithfulness and justice and righteousness. These people were not ready for that type of a king. See, I see Jesus accept the cross in the midst of such mockery because he was such a servant. He could have refused, but he, he began this journey knowing full well where it was leading, that there was no words of complaint, no protestations of innocence, none at all. Again, I look at my life in regards to this destination here, and I... Boy, I'll tell you what, I'm so convicted because as I look at my accepting of the cross, I realize I'm so prone to complain and to whine about the most trivial things. I can so easily, so, so easily fall into self-pity. I too often assume that the cross that I bear, you know, I'm the only one bearing a cross, or certainly mine is the heaviest of anybody that I know, anybody in, in my circles. Makes me cry out in a prayer, Lord, Help me be willing to follow you as your servant. You see this towel here. This is not dissimilar to the one that Jesus used on the night before Good Friday, on Monday, Thursday, and he washed his disciples' feet. Not, not, that was a realistic, actual washing of the feet, but the symbolism is incredibly powerful. Up until the bitter end, Jesus was first and foremost a servant, a servant of all. That's why he could accept the cross. That's why he could accept the beating that he took, the humiliation, the pain, and the suffering, because first and foremost, he was a servant of all. I need to learn to be more of a servant. I need to learn to use a towel like this more in my life. I'm way too self-centered, too focused on my goals and aspirations and, and my pleasures and such. Tonight, it's a conviction on my heart. I'm wondering if it is on yours. You may not actually have a towel like this that you use. Although, I, we were just, I just came across a Christian university. And the professors, their first day on the job, each received a towel, much like this. They were asked to put it up in their offices or their briefcases just as a daily reminder that they were there to serve the students. I might just hang this up in my office as a reminder of being a servant like Jesus was first and foremost. And by the way, I'm not talking about second Saturdays or go teams. Those are great things and you certainly serve there. But it's really easy to serve in those types of settings. What about in your family? What about on the soccer sidelines? What about at your workplace? Are you serving for Jesus in a 24-7 manner or just when it's easy and convenient? Jesus accepted the cross because he was first and foremost a servant. As we continue our journey to the cross tonight, we come to our third destination, the place at which Simon helps carry the cross. Mark 15, 21 tells us a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. I can only imagine the awful weight of the cross that Jesus carried. The weight of the cross 
pressed down upon his battered and bloodied back and shoulders. But also pressing on him was the weight of the burden he carried for those he loved. Jesus came to offer life, and yet his return was death. As he walked this Via Della Rosa, Jesus would fall from the crushing weight of pain and grief. I wonder how many times he fell. I wonder how physically exhausted he became. The soldiers noticed this as well. In fact, they actually forced a man from the crowd to help Jesus carry the cross the rest of the way to the place he would be crucified. I wonder if they were concerned that he would die before he made it to the top. Simon of Cyrene was just a bystander, a father like me, passing through on his way into town from the countryside, and yet he bore the weight of the cross to save Jesus' strength. What if it wasn't Simon of Cyrene, but it was my name the soldiers called? What if it was my arm they grabbed and pulled from the crowd? I'd love to think that I would have rushed forward and volunteered to carry the cross for Jesus. Would I really, though? Would I have risked it if I could have lost my life as well? If it meant I could lose my family or destroy my reputation? If I consider what I would do based on some of my reactions this week at work, at home, at school, in conversations with others or in the private, deep places of my heart, I may not have been so eager. In fact, I may have actually started looking around, hoping that somebody else would volunteer to take the cross and pretended to not notice what was actually happening. I find it all too easy to convince myself that I'm too busy, too tired, or have too many other important and urgent things on my plate already. That makes sense, or does it? This man from Cyrene, this father and bystander, is modeling discipleship for me and for you. He's modeling compassion and care and sacrifice. Who do I need to show compassion towards this week as a reflection of God's love towards me? Who do you need to care for in your life right now? May God give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear the needs around us. And would we be willing to courageously respond with the same love and compassion that Jesus has shown us? Our next and fourth destination brings us to the place where Jesus speaks to a group of women. Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 27 to 29, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. As Jesus continued to struggle down the road toward the place of his death, he sees a group of women among the crowd that followed him. They were already grieving his impending death. He had heard this kind of wailing before at at funerals and other tragic events, but now, now they mourn for him. Jesus had always shown equal compassion toward the women he encountered along his time on earth, but he had always seemed to understand the unique burdens that women bear in a world and a culture that pushes them to the margins of society. So here he he stops to speak to them. He's about to die, and yet he is more concerned with others than his own suffering and death. 
His words are strange and seem out of place on this journey of sorrow. He's still trying to tell them something that they, they cannot quite grasp or perhaps they did not want to hear. Jesus saw something that they refused to believe. He understood more than they realized. He knew that we are not as righteous as we thought. Maybe we have rejected repentance not because we did not need it, but because we needed it more than we dared admit. So what do Jesus' strange words mean here? And Jesus tells them that they are weeping for the wrong person, or rather, he says they're weeping for the wrong reasons. It's as if he says, don't weep for my suffering, weep for your sins. The real reason for tears is not the barbaric beatings that Jesus received or the, the savage suffering of it all. No, dear friends, the real reason for tears is that my sins put him there. My sins cost this. My sins, your sins, deserve this. Is it possible that our refusal to repent and change the way we live is really causing these beginnings of sorrow? Is our sin and our refusal to confess it really the reason we are on this path? Oh, Lord, give us the gift of tears to weep for our failures and our sins and the pain we bring to others and then to live the fruits of repentance. And God, allow us to embrace our deep brokenness and run to him alone for healing and hope. Our fifth destination and our final one in this section tonight is the point where Jesus is stripped of his garments. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took off his clothes, dividing them in four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus came into this world, and it's jubilation and anticipation. Angels sang from the heavens to celebrate his birth. As a child, magi from the east paid homage to him as to a king. The people followed him by the thousands as he taught on the hillsides of Galilee. They wanted to make him king. Just a few days before, the crowds followed him in the streets of Jerusalem, singing praises to God. Yet now, Jesus is forced to suffer the worst of human indignity. Just as the scripture said it would happen, Jesus stands alone as the soldiers strip from him the last thing he possesses and play games to see who will claim it. This is in stark contrast to the, just the day before when Jesus willingly laid aside his cloak and knelt down to wash his disciples' dirty feet. He called them to follow his example as a symbol of humility and service to others. Yet now, he allows others to strip him of his clothes. He allows them to publicly ridicule and disgrace him. He allows them to take everything and left with nothing, not even human decency. Jesus is teaching us here what it means to truly serve one another. He did not come to be served, but to serve, and he willingly laid aside his rights on our behalf. His willing surrender to such degradation and suffering is a model for how we are to live in this world as his followers. 
but I don't like such an idea. And if we were honest, we would all say that we would rather walk with him into Jerusalem with the praises of the people ringing in our ears. This here is pure humiliation. Pure humiliation and devastation. We all would say, I will follow you. But if this is what following Jesus looks like, are we prepared to lay aside everything and risk this kind of degradation and suffering in our lives? Are we willing to put the needs of others above our comforts, our schedules, our plans, and our rights? Dear friends, are we willing to serve and follow Jesus alone, no matter the cost, putting our faith and our trust in the one who set aside his rights and gave up his life on our behalf. And now we come to destination number six. Jesus is nailed to the cross. Luke 23 uh, says this. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, sometimes I think we're so familiar with this story that sometimes the scandal and absurdity of what's happening escapes us. Um, God, who is the creator and sustainer of all life, is crucified at the hands of the creatures who depend on him for everything. Do you see the absurdity? This is far worse than murder. This is, this is worse than the assassination of a world leader. This is total cosmic treason. And it's deeply absurd. This is like, it's like Hamlet killing Shakespeare. That makes no sense. Hamlet exists because of Shakespeare. Hamlet only has any meaning or value because of Shakespeare. If, if Hamlet kills Shakespeare, Hamlet's nothing. Right? If Hamlet kills Shakespeare, it's not murder, it's suicide. Now follow the logic. If the creatures who depend for their very life on God rise up and kill him, what should logically happen instantly? Complete and total annihilation. Nothing is left. The universe implodes. Humanity is wiped out in a moment. And yet, that doesn't happen. What intervenes? Why does humanity kill God and live to tell about it? It's because Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You see, Jesus prayed and God answered. God sustained the heartbeat of the soldier who was pounding the nails into the Savior's hands. God sustained the brain activity of the people who were standing around insulting and ridiculing Jesus. And God sustained a generation that rose up and slew God. You and I are here tonight because Jesus prayed for us. And God forgives. Isn't this forgiveness amazing? Isn't it unbelievable my, my kind of forgiveness, I, I can hardly do it even for minor offenses when people offend me. And yet Jesus is crucified 
He doesn't wait for an apology. He doesn't ask for us to say sorry. He just simply, liberally, generously offers his forgiveness. And my friends, if we're ever going to learn to forgive, it's going to be because God has loved us and forgiven us first. That is the only reason we can do it. See, the oil of God's love and forgiveness comes into our hearts, our dry, brittled, cracked hearts, and it begins to soften us, making us tender and supple once again. And it is only in that state that we can begin to forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven. Have you ever let the love and forgiveness of God deeply penetrate your heart so that it melts you? so that it begins to change you from the inside out, so that you begin to do the miraculous, you begin to forgive others as you yourself have been forgiven, my friends, we can begin to forgive because God has forgiven us. That takes us to destination number seven where Jesus cares for his mother. John 19 says this, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. (laughs) Don't you just love the tenderness of this moment? Mary is standing there, And she's looking up at her firstborn baby boy as he's dying before her very eyes. She was there when his eyes flittered open for the very first time. And she was there when he drew his first breath. And now she's waiting with horror and agony as she awaits the inevitable, inevitable moment when Jesus' eyes will close for the very last time and he will breathe out and his breath will never return. And not only is she losing her son, she's losing her provider and her protector because Joseph died a few years years earlier and it was Jesus who stood up and took over the carpentry business and he's been the man of the house and now he's leaving her too. And Jesus is hanging there and he's filled with compassion. He's filled with love for her and he says, "I I wish I could come down and comfort you. And Jesus looks around for maybe one of his four half-brothers that might be standing around because they're the ones who ought to be there and comfort their mother right now. But they're nowhere to be seen. Oh, they're in Jerusalem. This is Passover week. Every good Jew is in Jerusalem. They're there, but they're not at the foot of the cross. Like many of Jesus' disciples, they, they have fled and gone into hiding because in this moment, they will not identify with Jesus. But there is one disciple who's there. John. He calls himself here the disciple whom he loved. By the way, don't you just love that? Don't you love that John has learned that the very most important thing for identifying himself is that he's loved by Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters, not even his name. And so Jesus looks at John and he entrusts his mother to John's care. And John took that very, very seriously. I don't know about you, but this makes me just love Jesus. He's so tender. He's so caring. It makes me want to love like Jesus. It wants me to be more like him. His love is unbelievable. It's selfless. It's never stopping. It's never quitting. It never falters. It's always and forever love. Jesus 
when he loves us, if we let it into our souls, will begin to melt us and make us into the kind of people who can begin to love truly from our hearts. He will make us new. My friends, we can begin to love because God has loved us. That leads us to our, our last destination for this segment, number eight, where Jesus dies on the cross. Look with me at Matthew 27. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. That's it. It's over. The end. Jesus dies. And yet there's a lot going on here. I want to focus just on one thing, the earthquake. Why does the earthquake? Why does it shudder? Now, at one level, we might think it's shuddering because of the horror that has just happened, that the creator has died at the hands of the creation, and it shudders in agony. And there might be something to that. But may I suggest to you that this, this shuddering of this, the earth, this convulsion, is not the pain of a dying earth, but is instead the first contraction of childbirth as life is beginning to once again course through the earth. Because in Jesus' death, all things are being made new. Listen to this. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. The whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth as it awaits the glory of being made new in the presence of God. And so the earth pulsates with life through its frail crust and everything is starting to become new because Jesus has died and his death means life for everything. And so the temple curtain is torn in two because access to God and the presence of God is now available through Jesus Christ. And the tomb split open because even death itself cannot hold back the life that has been unleashed through Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. In Jesus Christ, God is making the universe entirely new. Do you live in this hope? Do you live in the dream that God will one day remake all of this universe and will make it perfect and whole again and you can live fully human once again? No sin, no brokenness, no pain, no death, no dying. Jesus Christ in his death is making everything new. My friends, we can live because God has died for us. 